Hello, and welcome to No Man's Land. I'm here today, as usual, with Steve O'Neill, and we're here to discuss democracy and polarisation. As well as Steve, we're joined by our special guest for this edition, Elliot Goat. Firstly, welcome Steve. Thanks, Martin. And secondly, welcome Elliot. Thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourself. Thanks, Martin. Uh, Steve, great to be on. So yeah, I'll start. So I'm uh, the director of Unhacked Democracy, which is a European-wide uh, election watchdog NGO that works to support electoral integrity across Europe. Um, I co-founded it uh, about five years ago uh, with an academic, with another journalist, uh, with someone who works in policy. Um, and so basically what we do is we aim to empower citizens by giving them the tools and the training to monitor their own elections um, and simultaneously protect democratic institutions from state interference. So it's really about safeguarding the, the democratic process uh, in action uh, through cross-disciplinary and cross-border collaboration. I think we, we took the basis of unhack um, to literally mean to restore a broken system to a functional state or revert the effects of a security breach. Basically, our goal is to both uncover these democratic security breaches by state and foreign actors and also bring about innovative citizen-led solutions to restore the system. Fantastic. Thanks for that introduction. So let's begin where we've got common cause. We set up No Man's Land in the aftermath of the polarisation resulting from the Brexit referendum. And you've done your own work on that with Unhacked. So please tell us a little bit more about what you did what you found? Yeah, so um, before on Hack, I was originally a journalist, um, but I worked or co-founded a campaign called Undivided, which was set up in the immediate aftermath uh, of the Brexit referendum. And it was uh, aimed at bringing together leavers and remainers to basically find common ground and build consensus and to try and secure a, sort of the best Brexit deal for young people. So this was focused on basically under 30s. Um, and over the course of the sort of following year, we ended up engaging about four and a half million under 30s across the country through online events and offline events. But I suppose it was it was it was a sort of test case. We literally came together the day after the referendum, and there were a wide group of people from different backgrounds. Um, and from the off, the, the point of the campaign was not to reverse the referendum; it was to make it work. So we basically. Uh, made sure that at every organisational level, from the leaders to spokesmen to people involved, was always basically an even split between young leavers and young remainers. Um, and what was interesting with that, I think, was the sort of blowback we got from predominantly the remain side and, and, and remainers who, rather than seeing us, us as a kind of collaborative consensus or, um, campaign, labelled us sort of pro-Brexit. We got a lot of blowback in Europe where we were trying to sort of build bridges and, and, and things like that. So I think it was it was interesting from an exercise in terms of how do you bring people together who've just been through a very traumatic experience. Um, and I think the successes and failures of that were vital in then taking and then taking those lessons on to what we did with Unhack. I'd start certainly with the sort of lessons that you drew from your experience with that in terms of um, how successful you were and 
weren't perhaps at sort of bringing the two disparate sides together and where common cause could be found? Yeah, I mean, there was lots of, I mean, obviously lots of tension um, between the two sides. Um, but I think in terms of what we found, so what we were trying to do is we were basically trying to build almost a kind of manifesto of what it was that Leavers and Remainers could agree on rather than identify the differences. So a lot of it focused on, because it was around young people, focused on common cause around pursuing a kind of green Brexit um, and things around open immigration, which is something that both young Leavers and young Remainers agree on that those were those were kind of along the sort of top priorities which contrasted a lot with what we saw in the kind of referendum itself um but i think in terms of kind of lessons as i said it sort of it, it always it went back to the actual process itself and that's that's kind of what we what i've what i took away from it the most is how these two sides could work together um or don't um and that was the real tension point i think Going back a couple of years, we we had a number of conversations on the podcast around whether the Remain side um, and their mistakes contributed to quite a hard Brexit or, or the quite hard Brexit that we ended up with. I just wonder, would you would you go as far as that? Do you think that their unwillingness to compromise got us into a worse place? I mean, I think you can you can probably see that in terms of the trajectory over the course of the three years it was sort of going through Parliament about the, the, the inability to compromise basically limited the options and um, the, the opportunities for a kind of softer Brexit. And I think um, that is, I mean, I mean, you're talking about the, the campaign to overturn it, I think was hugely damaging um, for the sense of democracy in Britain, um, whether you believe, whether you believed in Remain with whether you believed in leave, in leave. It's yeah. It, it basically you, you you had to carry on. You had to carry through the, the democratic process. And I think by not doing that, we forced a hard Brexit. So let's move on to the subject of democracy itself. And is it true, in your opinion, that democracies are becoming more polarized in general? And what evidence is there for it, do you think? And feel free to draw on uh, Brexit mm -hmm. as an example. Well, I mean, starting off, um, I think there was a, a Cambridge University survey a few years ago um, that said, I think, fewer than half all of Labour and Conservative voters said that they were willing to talk about politics uh, with someone from the other side. And even, even, I mean, famously, even more than that, wouldn't be happy for their child to marry someone from the opposite political side. Um, and I think as a case in point, I mean, that was obviously a, a trigger from Brexit. But I think the, the, the change we've seen over the last six years um, is the point in which political views have become political identities. So we see people who agree with us in a positive light, um, they're more intelligent, they're more selfless, they're more open-minded. And people who disagree with us um, as the opposite and once you construct these barriers, it's incredibly hard to break them down. I mean, there's there's research which has found that if you agree with someone politically, if you disagree with someone politically, then you'll also disregard their other expertise in completely unrelated domains. I mean, even the fact if, it, if even when it costs you money. Um, so I think that the, the transition from having a political viewpoint, having a political identity that defines you, 
um, is a major change and something that's a massive problem. And I think now we're almost moving into a, a situation where you're moving from political identity into a social identity, um, which um, creates in itself a, a, another set of problems. So it's it's this this is the sort of I think at the root of polarization um, specifically. Um, and I think if we're talking about polarization in democracies, I mean a lot of the stuff that we found is that the, the rise in polarization is a phenomenon that is predominantly found in in democracies itself. Um, so this is the kind of point in which you have to address that. Steve, did you want to come in? Yeah, what, what can we say about um, what is causing this? So I know that's been much debated. Can we say with any certainty how we've got here? I mean, so there's there's the, the varieties of democracies, which is a, a, a basically looks at data, um, which is sort of looked at the, the rise of, of, of polarisation um, and its relationship with levels of democracy over the last few decades. And I think what it found was that sort of there's a, there's a link between severe polarization and severe democratic decline. So it's, it's a cause and effect, um, as you will. And I think the key to this um, is the decline in trust. And, and this is something that we at AMHAC work a lot on, which is around declining trust in institutions. Um, and also, I mean, a, a wider declining trust in democracy itself. Um, so that's whether that's support amongst young people for democracy versus autocracy as the most effective form of government. Um, and I think if we're talking about this, this also links back to the idea of a decline in people who identify with a traditional party. So along, along the traditional kind of left-right axis um, and, and the fact that people feel increasingly that uh, their political opinions are unrepresented or underrepresented or not represented by the mainstream parties. And so what this does is create people, it, it makes people see solutions in the extremes. Um, and so this leads obviously to political fragmentation, um, where you have parties splitting into smaller and smaller groups. Um, I mean, you look at the UK, where the far right of the Tory party and then the, the centre and then look at Labour and you look at America, which is obviously having its elections today and how what was a traditional two party state, uh, two, two, two party election electoral system is split into basically fragmentations of that. And that's happened in the US, it happens in the UK and across much of Europe. Um, and I think also, I mean, you we also move to the fact to the point in which instead of identifying with parties, people align themselves with specific political or social issues. So this is effectively a kind of issue polarization. Um, I think, I mean, one of one of the things that we do unhack at unhack, which is about trying to sort of work out ways to solve this and work out ways to bring people together is we, we stress quite a lot that the, the way to safeguard democracy and democratic processes is to build habit of democracy so that's around the idea of voting early and, and you get into the into the rhythm of, of, of voting and you feel engagement and that goes into the idea of, kind of stakeholder of democracy as well where you have an emotional and a positive um, sort of response to participation and ownership so that is a big is a big issue for us 
But I think that also works on the flip side in that you, if you, if if you develop a habit of habit of polarization, of, of, of always being in opposition to an idea or to a certain group, then this is also incredibly hard to break once it's established. So the solution of, of developing a habit of democracy also lies in there the, the problem, which is a habit of sort of polarization. And once you're in this cycle, it's incredibly hard to break. I want to pick up on something you, you said there. Um, normally following this debate and coverage, the impression I get, and it's only from an observer, observer impression, is that the narrative tends to be that polarization has put pressure on democratic institutions. But I think what you described was a lack of trust in democratic institutions creating polarization. Is that right? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, from 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 the UK, I mean, we do a lot of the work we do, which is in Europe, looking at sort of hybrid and semi-authoritarian regimes, decline in trust in in institutions is the key issue that's affecting um, sort of support for the democratic process. And if you look at the, the polarization um, and and declining trust, they go hand in hand. Um, so as I said, it is a, it is a cause and effect. But you look at attempts. I mean, take the US. When you look at attempts to undermine the vote, the the the, the validity of the voting system, um, or um, the, the 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 way the media landscape works by 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 questioning those institutions you're able to create a polarised environment in which what one person says um, is polar opposite to what the other person says, but they both agree. Do you have any insights into sort of why it's people have gone from having political views, as you described, to political identities, to social identities, given that certainly in this country the, there was a lot of sort of party-identified identity um around sort of conservative and labor and i was it 95 odd percent of all votes cast were for labor or conservative and i think mm-hmm. in the mid 50s so there seemed to be some quite strong sort of party identification then but what so what do you think has driven the the change from a sort of a viewpoint to an identity one of the things that we did when we were in undivided and we're also seeing is rise or the importance of single issues in, in whether that's the environment as a, as a perfect example and these are the factors that in a lot of cases especially amongst, amongst younger people are the defining factor and what defines them politically um, so in the in the past it would be the party and the party would uh, stand for a certain set of values um, or ideas whereas now I think single issue politics is a much more potent uh, factor in in defining what people want. I mean, this is and this is what we found with Undivided in that we had young leavers, Remainers, people from the Tory party, Labour party, they all agreed that the environment was the key priority in crafting a so-called Brexit future. So I think that the, 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 the idea of kind of issue polarisation and issue politics is effectively trumping party loyalty. So while we we were set up in the aftermath of Brexit, how much do you think, and you can say, whether Brexit is a 
cause or a symptom of the polarisation in the UK, and specifically not just the outcome of the referendum, but everything that's sort of gone around it? And then how much is that a sort of, you know, that's obviously a UK-specific case, and we've talked on some of the sort of things elsewhere, but I'd be interested to sort of see, get your thoughts on the sort of cause and effect or symptom of um, how how these different factors feed into and feed off each other. Look, look at the referendum. I mean, it obviously, as is discussed, it tapped into existing grievances. It didn't didn't create them. But I think the difference is that it effectively codified these differences and created a kind of sense of, of a set of new polarised binary identities the remain um, then were the sort of catalyst for for, for polarization if that makes sense and I mean I mean I mean you look at you look at big big sort of what's happened since since the Brexit referendum which obviously created polarization that that probably peaked in 2019 but it's still very much there and a defining factor within British politics and then you look at something like the pandemic, which um, a lot of people initially thought would effectively bring people together. Um, and it did for a short time. But you look at you look at data um, from from the sort of summer of 2020 onwards, and you see that people's sort of trust towards their neighbors and the community remains incredibly low. And I think this goes back to what I was saying before about once you break this this idea that people need to work together or, or consensus or trust in organisations. I mean, trust is something that is famously hard to rebuild once it's broken. Um, and I think that works as well with the sort of Brexit situation we find them in. I mean, sort of going on at a kind of, at an elite level, I suppose, um, sort of political divides um, have crippled efforts um, legislative compromise, they erode institutional and behavioural norms, but they also incentivize politicians to sort of pursue their aims outside of these gridlocked institutions, which leads to radical, I mean, radical populists. You look at, you do a lot of work in Hungary, so you look at Orban, you look at I mean, Bolsonaro, even, even Trump, who use the 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 gridlock of the, the, the slow moving nature of, of democracy as a, as a means to say, look, we need to, we need to circumvent these. We need to circumvent these traditions and these norms. Um, and then, so if, I mean, if you look at America, these, 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 these devices that have been created go way outside the, the, the corridors of power. So um, you look at, you look at what's happening in the U S and people are, people self divide themselves into distinct and mutually exclusive groups. And this creates a kind of us versus them mindset, um, which is evident in anything from the rise in partisan media to the decline in Americans' willingness to marry someone from a different political party. Um, and I think the, the, what's dangerous about this, as you look at this, is that the, what, is, what was always evident, what is happening and we're seeing now, is the, the, these, these contribute to the steep rise in direct political violence we saw in America um, with the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Um, and this is, I think, the sort of logical, it's not the logical, but it's, 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 this is the end point and this is the, the path that 
what happens if you sort of if you then codify to to binary identities, whether it's Republican and Democrat, whether it's uh, leave or remain. I'd like to pick up on the contrast or maybe similarities between um, these kind of anti-democratic and fringe views in mainstream parties and in um, more fringe parties. So obviously in Europe and in the UK, we've seen UKIP, um, not so much now, but a few years ago, uh, rise. And you've got AFD in Germany, Swedish Democrats, Brothers of Italy, all those smaller parties growing. That, well, maybe they're quite some of them are bigger now, but started small. Um growing from a sort of fringe place um and then another the contrast of course is and uh, looking over the the pond today is uh, looking at what's happened within the republican party and of course you mentioned trump a minute ago is that is that something similar happening or should we contrast that um or and how would we how we make sense of it all i mean i would i would almost break it down into three ways so you you've got extremist parties such as the fd um, more recently, successfully, you've got Swedish Democrats and the Brothers of, of Italy, um, which, of course, use polarization um, to, to use polarization and stoke differences and conflict within societies. But they also, I think, create this political game. So they, th- th- this is this is a much this is much about polarization creation rather than just merely exploiting existing grievances um i mean i was we were we were away and i was speaking to a former swedish mp who was talking about the rise of, of swedish democrats i mean he was a centrist um and he was saying that basically they what they did very successfully was almost create issues where they didn't where they didn't Exist them so obviously issues around sort of public services which were traditionally very good, um, and you they they did that by basically creating echo chamber news through different subsidiaries of media organisations that they controlled, which basically created this 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 buzz and it was a, it was a, basically a feedback loop. But they said what was what was what looking back on it and looking at their eventual rise, the big mistake that mainstream Swedish parties made was not engaging with them. So they wouldn't engage with them on panel show. They wouldn't engage with them in the media. And so that basically gave them a free hand to say whatever they want without being called to account. And I mean, I know we, 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 we saw this um, a few years back with Nick Griffin in the, in the BMP and this whole debate around whether you engage him um, or whether you ignore him, and I think when they, when 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 the BBC finally decided to engage with him, went on question time, and they, and it was it was it was it effectively showed him up for what he was. And um, so I think that if you're talking about the lessons, that's a key lesson there. But also I think if you're talking about exploiting grievances, you have to look at social media, and you have to look at the algorithms that promote conflict over consensus, um, which is. Uh, another huge factor in driving polarization, and then I think if you're looking, if you look at kind of more, more as you move more mainstream. I mean, as I said, we do a lot of stuff in Hungary. You look at a party like Fidesz, which is semi-authoritarian, um, but it's been in government, has been uh, it's been in power on and off since the early nineties, um, and they're very good at exploiting polarization, but they do it from a position of power. And, and I suppose 
that's what that's what sort of brings you to the third point, which is talking about the Republicans who have effectively created sort of internal polarization. As I said before, and it's not just one party, it's they're now several parties. Um, and then that in itself um, has led to a sort of a, a complete, basically, uh, a complete decline in any kind of cross-party cooperation you see in the US um, compared to even, say, 15 or, or 20 years ago. Um, and I think, back to your last point, which is talking about whether this is a sort of systemic issue, I do think um, you look at sort of majoritarian systems like we have in the UK, you have in America, versus a PR electoral system, um, and that is fundamental to the idea of oppositional politics. I mean, the whole that if you look if you look at Germany, the whole point of PR is around coalition building. It's around consensus rather than appealing to your your base, your extremist base, which in a sort of majority sectarian system like Britain's rewards you for that. Thanks. So how much, given some of the things that we've talked about, can some of this be explained as the usual ebb and flow of democratic politics? So I think back to how the um, the sort of social democratic left thrived around the sort of early 2000s, then the change in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So are we overreacting to some of this or are you seeing genuine and long-lasting and perhaps fundamental sort of damage being done not only to democratic sort of systems but actually the democratic ideal itself i mean there's there's there's, there's obviously a back and forth that happens with any political system um but i think what's different and what's changed over the last 10 years potentially five ten years is the idea of consensus politics being replaced with a sort of oppositional grievance-driven politics. Um, and this means that sort of political debate has effectively been weaponized or turbocharged. Um, and I think this is as much a consequence of the medium, which in this case is social media, um, than the message itself. Um, and I mean, looking back, you see sort of extraordinary levels of polarisation um, that date back to, say, the mid-2000s um, in the run-up to the financial crisis, which is when a sort of new global wave of autocratization um, really came about. So you look at countries like Hungary, you look at countries like India and Poland and Turkey, which took a turn around, around these times um, into a sort of more extreme, more populist uh, form of government. Um, so I, I mean, oh, is, is, is there an overreaction? Um, I think, I mean, if you look at all of the data, you look at democratic decline um, across the world, um, you know, any, any, any survey will say that it's, that it's, it's from, from 15 years ago, it is in decline. Um, I don't know. I mean, you were talking about sort of causes of evidence of sort of democratic rollback. And and on this very worrying topic of democratic rollback, um, 
what is that are you able to give any more color to what that means in 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 practice and i think you've alluded to some of these risks being being very real but um how, how worried are you about um democracies becoming illiberal democracies or autocracies well i mean so the region that we focus on as an hack um which is predominantly sort of central europe we work in western europe and all the way through to the balkans to Caucasus. The biggest trend we're seeing um, is around the emergence of sort of so-called hybrid regimes, um, which have become the kind of dominant force of government um, across the region. So I mean, what are hybrid regimes? Hybrid regimes are basically where the, the structures, the, the, the trappings, as it were, of a, kind of, a, of, a, of a normal democratic liberal state are there but they've been taken over and marred by kind of authoritarian practices. So examples of sort of mass centralization, um, clientelistic structures, tilting, tilting the field to favor, to favor government supporters. Um, the idea, I mean, the, the uh, capture of the independent media um, and a very much sort of dividing of society into sort of homogenous groups that they can be targeted. So, I mean, Freedom House uh, do their report every year and they sort of track the, the democratic decline that happens around the world, but also specifically in, in Europe, in the region that we look at. And it found that sort of 18 years ago, so sort of saying sort of around the mid-noughties, when this wave of autocratization sort of first, first began to emerge, I think there were there were four or five out of thirty countries um, that sort of identified as hybrid regimes, and now there are uh, that's well into double figures. So this is this is a process that sort of tripled over the course of fifteen years. And I think what's important to note is this is a problem because it's incredibly hard once you get into effectively this grey zone between. Uh, a liberal democracy and an illiberal autocracy, um, it's very hard to get out. So it's effectively kind of, it's, it's a one-way traffic. And I mean, Freedom House was talking about how there's that in the course of the 18 years, all these countries that moved towards hybrid regimes, none have been able to basically get back to graduate to a democracy. So there are only kind of two paths to this. One is to move to a full autocracy um, or effectively stagnate as hybrid regimes. So I think you can this what's what a lot of the stuff that we focus on is about the trajectory that countries take on this path from liberal democracies to illiberal democracies. We do lots of I mean, we do lots of work um, in countries um, where, I mean, for example, we, we did stuff around the Hungarian election in April and people who came from countries like Russia to observe it, things like that, were able to see the path that their country had taken and was happening in Hungary. And I think you can see this directly, but you can also see this sort of wave moving across Europe from Russia through places like Hungary, I and mean, even to places like the UK. I and mean, obviously that's a dramatic statement, but you look at things like the UK elections bill, um, which brought... The, what is meant to be an independent electoral commission under the control or, or, or under the guidance of the government. It, it, it 
introduced things such as voter ID. And I mean, this, this, this kind of, this effectively overreach by government is straight out of uh, an authoritarian playbook. And it's scary to see these things slowly, subtly happening in places like the UK. People didn't uh, know about the elections bill. People weren't aware of it. We tried to campaign um, and lobby against it. There was almost no media pickup. There will be when people go to the polls and realise that you need an ID to vote, which disenfranchises, could disenfranchise potentially millions of people. And then you have the idea of the Electoral Commission being drawn in or politicised, whether that's limiting uh, trade union donations or vice versa if, if you have a Labour government. And this trajectory, I think, is incredibly dangerous for the future where we're headed. I mean, that is certainly sobering to hear about the, the UK. Are there any other countries that we don't normally hear about um, in the news that are particularly worrying you in terms of democratic rollback? You look at look, look at the US, and I think the US is, obviously, it's, it's incredibly well-known. But the thing with the US is, and, and, and with the UK, political, you know, the, the decline and the move from hybrid regimes is often associated with stagnating economy or a country that's going backward. And I think looking at the sort of economic relationship with the political is is important. I mean, there are, there are I mean, elections coming up, there are elections coming up in Turkey, there are elections coming up next year in Poland. Um, and these, I think, are key sort of barometers to see the direction of travel, if you will. Lots of people, when we were working in Hungary, said that this was the last election to effectively stop Orban from becoming dictator. I mean, he kind of already is, but this was the last chance. And after they lost, um, the opposition lost, there was a kind of sense of, of basically resignation amongst lots of people and lots of people are now leaving. So I think you look at countries that are, are on the cusp, whether that's Turkey, whether that's Serbia, whether that's um, Poland, and these are the kind of, these are the big milestone countries that I think we need to look out for in the next year. Obviously, with America being the leading one of that, not just because of its importance, but I think because of its position in the kind of debate around polarisation and decline in democratic norms. I just want to play a slight devil's advocate with you here and ask whether, to some extent, some of these threats to the future of democracy are real or slightly overblown in that is there a, a case to be made that actually some of these concerns are legitimate about out-of-touch institutions that have been captured by one sort of portion of the population arguably a minority you've sort of seen some of the the arguments made around Brexit that certain institutions represent the views of, some would argue, a sort of remain a point of view. There tends to be a demographic kind of profile associated with that of someone who's you know, quite well educated and seeing you know these sort of splits in society and in political preferences along the lines of say education. 
So how much do you think that there is a legitimate concern that institutions in a broad sense have become out of touch? I mean, that's obviously the the argument that's that sort of forms the foundation of a lot of populist rhetoric. And I think like with anything, it's not one thing or the other. I mean, you you you're talking about are, are the threats to democracy real? I mean, in the countries that we work in, they're very much real. Um, so you look at democratic rollback, or you look at voter suppression, or the sort of toxification of online debate. These are challenges that do require attention and and focus. I mean, if we're talking about, I think the the, the idea of institutions that have sort of that have this orthodoxy or consensus. I mean, we we you you, you saw with with this trust's mini budget that potentially orthodoxy is not necessarily a bad thing. But I mean, if you're talking about to democracy on the flip side, I mean, voter, voter apathy, which is something that was a big concern around, around, the, around a future threat to democracy and that people were switching off, is in reverse in lots of countries as the political stakes become higher. But I think, I think it, what's important to talk about this also is potentially look at not only the threats, but also the solutions. So we, as an organisation, we're very much focused on uh, election election day, election, election, sort of defending the institutions around elections. But I think what we've seen recently is the idea that democracy is much more than elections. It's, it must be an ongoing thing. And um, I mean, a great line that's not mine, but I'll use it anyway, which is that democracy is not a state of being, it's a practice of becoming. So it's a constantly evolving process. And I think this, this involves kind of boosting sort of civic and political engagement by rethinking the sort of space and place of where democracy happens. So you, you, you're countering polarization by combining online debate and offline interactions, and you need better literacy and communications. And I think it's also about connecting people back with what, it, what democracy means for them. So the idea of, I mean, we, we do a lot of this work, which is, highlighting the kind of benefits of democracy. Um, so how it's better for improving work conditions or defending individual rights or tackling climate change. Um, and our sort of big, not our, not our tagline, but one of our, our, our main messages is the idea that if, if, if you defend democracy, it will defend you. So I think going back to the original point, the threats are very real, but you must see them along with the solutions as well. Earlier on, you touched on some of the data and metrics around health of democracies. Um, I'm just wondering how some of the the, the sort of more, more established ones compare. So how, how does the UK and the US and France, Germany, how do they compare and, um, on, on those scales? And um, is there anything we can uh, take from that? Um, compare in terms of, in terms of what? I suppose, I suppose, health of health of democracy. There's any way of measuring that, or, or maybe there's specific aspects of that that we can can talk about. I mean, I think this 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 goes back to the idea of trust, and I think trust as a barometer of the health of democracy is, I think, key. Um, so obviously, there's polling and there's 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 some constant research which, which monitors people's trust in their institutions, and I think the UK. And, and the US as well, 
um, have seen a massive decline. Whereas you look at, I mean, we do work with German with partners based in Germany and trust for institutions, for the democratic process itself, for trust in the, legitim the legitimacy of elections is very high. And I, I mean, I don't have the answer to this, but I think it's interesting to look at, going back to the idea of polarization and looking at countries where it's where the idea of kind of building a consensus politics through coalition building um, is key. Um, and I think that, 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 that idea of sort of reinforcing trust institutions and, and creating a kind of a dialogue and a consensus between opposing points of view um, is, is, is the key, I think. And, and the, this conversation makes me think a bit about some of the individual issues that seem to be so polarizing. Um, and obviously one right now is immigration. Um, and my understanding around that is that people don't trust the migration system. So, and you're talking about institutions and, and trust in them. So I, I wonder, is, is there anything we can learn from that about how we deal with individual issues and particularly the migration issue maybe as a, as a case in point? You look at, you look at America, for example, the idea that the Democrats were really pushing over the summer was around, obviously, threats to abortion rights, but also threats to democracy itself. And that was a key plank of what they were, they were sort of pitching to voters. And I think, as you can see, I mean, we don't know what the results are, but what voters actually cared about was bread and butter issues, like the economy, like immigration, um, and I think if you're talking about how you approach these kind of issues, that's a probably a good example in that most people, unfortunately, don't care about democracy as an abstract idea. They care about the issues that affect them. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do, which is about, link, as I said, linking back what democracy means and should mean for, for most people. I mean, we, we work with people in Ukraine who said that the way that they the way that they basically tried to link what was going on was the idea of sort of if you if you if you create your own energy that's uh, related to energy independence which is related obviously related to Russia but you're also create, you're also linking it to climate change you're also linking it to the cost of living crisis so i think in that sense talking about democracy which is always an abstract idea that most people don't really understand and can't relate to is a massive problem. And you're seeing that in America as well, in that actually, in a sense, there's been there's been a pivot from not talking about democracy and not talking about the threats to it to talking about it too much. I mean, we do we do we do lots of lots of election watchdog work. And the idea that people would care about election administration or would care about ballot counting or would care about election monitors even three or four years ago would be would be unthinkable but now they're at the sort of front line of the democratic process but i think it's always important to remember what it is that people actually care about and so you need to link what people care about and the everyday bread and brother issues to the wider democratic conversation i mean that that's hugely fascinating it's funny how things are boring until suddenly they are the most interesting thing uh, it would be remiss if I didn't uh, shamelessly plug the fact that our next podcast will be looking at the 
US midterm results, which of course are coming in, um, well, I guess they're about to begin to come in now over the evening. Um, and of course, one of the topics of that will be um, what that means for American democracy. Thanks for the uh, shameless plug, Steve. And uh, Elliot, this is our chance to get some free consultancy from you, if you don't mind. And it's really a, a blank canvas for you to talk about the most important things. What on earth can we do about all of this? What can we do for politicians at all levels, from presidents and prime ministers to councillors and candidates in, in their localities? Um, what are the most important things? And feel free to sort of uh, tread again over ground you've covered before if you think it's important. But I really want to end this on a kind of optimistic note and uh, kind of to talk about what we need to see and what people need to do if they want some of these things that we've talked about to be sort of countered and yeah, improved from the point of view of uh, our democracy. One of the things we've been talking about as, as an organisation, we came up with a, a catchy line, which is effectively, how do you make democracy sexy again? And democracy is very abstract. It's very angry. Um, it's very polarising. And all of those things, whilst fun uh, for people and gets people riled up and is, is I think, eventually toxic and fatal to the debate. And we're, we're reaching a point now where we are at a crossroads, I think. Um, and, I mean, people... People talk, I mean, but then people are talking about the US election in the midterms as the last chance. We saw this in Hungary. Um, and I think, first of all, what people need to do is need to take a step back on both sides. But also, as I said, I think there needs to be a, a much greater reconnect with what it is, what the, the fundamentals of. of of democracy and what it is that people value and what it is that people see and so i mean i think i think what what is what is required is a whether this would be a uh, a sort of a mass sort of survey focus group campaign looking at what it is whether it's a series of tunnels looking at it about what it is that people want from it but also see from and how they see it within their lives. So I think before, you, without being able to understand that, you can't then address the bigger issues that sort of dominate the media. Sorry, do you mind if I just jump in there and go, do we almost need to always have in our mind the case for why we think democracy is a good thing and restate not only a good thing, but superior as a system of government? I was reading a piece the other day saying that um, messy democracy is always better than um, the sort of sterile authoritarianism because, for example, decisions can get changed when they're not the sort of the settled view of a dictator. You have the, the ability to debate, to take part, and that means that things can change according to the lives of, you know, people rather than being sort of 
um, just dictated from on high. So do we almost need to just start by restating the case um, in a sort of fundamental way that's maybe people are complacent and take it for granted? I, I, I completely agree. I think what needs to happen, I mean, I touched on it earlier, um, is linking to the fact that if you're talking about the rise of issue politics and issue polarisation and single issues that drive people, you need to stress why democracies are the best for those. I think the problem is now is that you have, especially amongst young people, um, but amongst white people, if, if you're talking to take take the environment, which is obviously a hugely important issue, but people don't feel that because I mean because it's a because it's a macro global issue, it's a global problem that democracies is not the solution to that. I think you need to stress the the, the link between agreeing politics and democratic engagement, and this goes back to the idea of workers' rights um, or. Or different different forms of different forms of rights, and I think this what's key to this also is then fostering the idea of a kind of stakeholder democracy in which people feel that they have they have they have a, a, a stake in the decision making in the in the in 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 the democratic process itself. And I mean, I know there were there are different ideas around this around tax and being able to contribute a your tax to to a political party, or the idea of Having a sort of recall vote where you can effectively vote in and out your your MPs or your, your representatives at a more regular at a more regular time. I'm not sure how that works. How that would work in principle, in practice. But I think those kind of connection points are crucial to solving this this disconnect, which going all the way back to the beginning, I think, is the the. The, if we're talking about the kind of drivers there, it's the disconnect, it's the, which leads to the decline in trust, which leads to polarisation, which leads, which leads back to a kind of a, a, a disconnect again. And so I think to do that, you need to take it back to the base, the base level of what it is that people want from it and can get out of it. I just wanted to end with your thoughts on two potential sort of I mean, maybe they're slightly sort of headline policies or options. But do you think, given the importance of the democratic um, habit, whether you have any thoughts on, one, lowering the, vote, uh, the voting age to try to both get people into the habit early, but as someone with a bit of sort of economics training, you create an incentive perhaps for longer-term decision-making, and two... What you think of compulsory voting? I mean, I think lowering lowering the rotation. I mean, there's obviously there's studies which say that if you don't vote in the first election where you're eligible to, there's a high percentage that you won't vote again. So I think voting voting early, not necessarily often, <laughs> um, is 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 the key to that. And I think you're right. I mean, you look at you look at engagement in countries that have a lower voting age um, and it's massively high and then you create effectively repeat customers you build this up you build up this habit of doing that and then I mean compulsory voting I'm I'm for compulsory voting um, I think it would it would I'm, I'm not sure what the the effect would be and the impact would be 
Um, but I do think getting people involved in the democratic process, um, even if it's not something that they would normally do or want to do, will massively improve the kind of conversation around 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 this. And I think this the, the logical extension of that is also, I mean, moving away from a majoritarian first past the post system in the UK, in which seventy percent of people's votes don't matter. Um, towards um, a more proportional representational system. I think this, you're talking about how to engage people, that is, from a UK point of view, in my opinion, fundamental. And I think it will create a kind of, hopefully, if it happens, when it happens, a domino effect that could reshape people's entire engagement with the political system and politics in, uh, as a whole. So I think if you're talking about solutions, real solutions, in the UK, PR must be at the front of the queue. Before we finish, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to conclude with? Yes, I mean, I think um, just to sort of touch back um, on a few of the, the issues, looking back on it, um, actually some sort of things that I, I, I didn't cover. I think what's important to notice uh, or to note is sort of you're talking about the causes of polarization. I think obviously um, the, the, the immediate answer to, to talking about polarization is obviously the sort of echo chamber of social media. But I do think that this is one factor um, of many. Um, and so I just want to highlight this again the sort of the issue, the, the, the factor of issue polarization, as it were. Um, which is sort of really driving this polarization. So using sort of a few key modes of issues like abortion or like immigration or sort of act as wedges that then define um, and divide sort of political identities. And I think um, the role of kind of populist leaders or political leaders in deliberately exploiting these fears and prejudices can't be understated. So we look at the most successful cases. So Trump or Bolsonaro or, or the Leave campaign even Sort of tapping into people's emotional responses and creating a kind of common enemy, which then in turn sort of galvanizes their supporters. And so then into this, amplifying this message is the sort of social media landscape. So do you mind if I just pick up very quickly on that? So, because there is this talk of social media. So do you think social media in itself is a sort of um, almost a bad influence? Or do you think it is just a, a neutral tool that is being used in a way that stokes polarization? I mean, it, it. I mean, look at look at it. I mean, the the way that social media functions um, is based on conflict um, rather than consensus, and I think this is um, perhaps an unfortunate truth in that the algorithm reflects people's way that people think and the way that people want to think and that people don't want in, in a lot of cases like to have their views reinforced they don't want to have them challenged and i think this is part of the big problem if you're talking about how to sort of build build bridges between different groups um and like i mean as, as i said before so we're looking at um biggest issue i think is the decline in trust amongst the public which in institutions in the democratic process um and trust, your, your trust in these institutions is defined very much by your political identity. And 
what polarization does, in my opinion, is, is feeds back into and enforces um, this sort of decline in support for democracy. So it's a sort of vicious cycle of, of rising polarization. Um, and I think what is important, and you see this reflected in online and online debate, is that one of the, the, the most dangerous factors of polarization is that it sort of shatters informal but crucial norms of tolerance and moderation. So for example, the idea that you have a peaceful transfer of power if you lose an election. Um, and this sort of keeps political competition within bounds. And I think you see what's happening on social media um, where these norms and these accepted um, patterns of behaviour are breaking down and in a sense rewarded. And then you go back to the idea of the kind of echo chamber bubble, which is just serves as the ultimate feedback loop for this. Great, thank you. So what... Are your sort of other thoughts on some of the things that we've discussed to kind of draw all the threads mm-hmm. together? I mean, I think just 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 to highlight as well. I mean, we talked before about whether the threats to, to democracy were real, um, whether they were the idea of a kind of, of, a, of an out and touch set of institutions. I just wanted to stress because I don't think I highlighted it enough that you just need to look, for example, what's happening in. Ukraine to see the consequences of democratic drawback. So the invasion itself was not a bolt from the blue, but a sort of logical conclusion of years spent by Putin slowly undermining Russia's democratic institutions. And this highlights, I think, the importance of having strong and perhaps more crucially independent institutions to stand up and challenge power when it overreaches. And this is what I said, go back to our, our sort of defining motto that we that Unhack has, which is, if you defend democracy, it will defend you. Liberal democracies to private regimes to full autocracies. You can see the playbook that Putin has used over the last 15 years and the parallels of what's happening elsewhere in Europe, um, in America, in, in places like Brazil, um, in terms of sort of democratic rollback, voter suppression and sort of toxification and polarization um, of online debate. And I think the, the, another point, um, if we're talking about solutions and lessons, learning from threats to democracy and the future and the future threats to democracy, is that you have is you have to appreciate that it's never static, constantly evolving. So this is something that we found working in Hungary on the election. Um, so for example, a lot of our research um, and our advocacy work, not just our civil society, international organisations, focused a lot on threats to election day voting. And this was from the big investigations we did into, into voting irregularities um, in 2018, in the election in which Orban won his supermajority by um, one seat, which enabled, enabled him to change the constitution. So the election this year, Everyone focused on the election day irregularities. Um, but the problem was is that we, we missed the actual, the, the real challenge this time around to free and fair election was not election day. It took place days or weeks or even months before through a kind of highly state-controlled media landscape um, and through the misuse of campaign financing. So an important lesson that I think is transferable, I mean, you, you saw that in America um, at midterms in which there was a lot of focus on um, election day concerns around election day voting, but actually you need to make sure that you're in effect 
don't fight the last war, as it were, and you're always looking for where the next battleground will be. Um, so I think that's a sort of key in terms of how you try and combat um, these sort of threats. And in fact, in our uh, other podcast on the um, the midterm elections, we spoke a bit about gerrymandering, about voter mm. suppression. So it's the same thing. The the bits that happen between the elections are mm. at least, if not more, important than what happens this, in the election itself. I think this, but this is this is the thing: is that was he seeing the, the democratic process as constantly evolving, a twenty four seven issue that needs to be. The, the it, it works both ways and that threats to democracy constantly evolving and whether it's autocrats who are increasingly sort of professionalized so therefore the response needs to be as well and you just you don't just see it as campaign or election day you see it as a sort of non-stop chance to defend the democratic process in action so it's not just something that is over there and happens every so often every four or five years or or so but happens every minute of every hour yeah. of every day and it's like the culture and a way of living and i think yeah and i think this goes back to what we were saying in terms of um how you engage more people with the democratic process so that you, people don't just see it as a once every four year or in the case of the uk more than a bit more than that um sort of event you don't see you don't see democracy as an event it's it's a it's it's a it's a constantly evolving way of being that you need to engage, and whether that's through, I mean, we touched on it briefly, but whether that's through um, more direct democracy or um, different ways of engaging people in the process, I think that's a, that is a, is a key to making it more sustainable and defending it in a better way. Just one sort of very quick question, well, potentially a very quick question. Is it, why do so many sort of autocratic regimes pay so much lip service to democracy for things that they don't then um, actually implement? And um, why well, is it time, important to pay that lip service? I mean, I mean, look, I can't, I can't remember where this was, but in terms of, there was a survey done of sort of global of regimes of countries and governments around the world, and I think the numbers who didn't in a sense, pay lip service or to say, say that they were in some sense democratic was into single fingers, into single figures. Um, so it's massively important. But when you're talking about something like hybrid regimes, the, the, the hybrid regimes are effectively based on the notion that democratic institutions are free. Um, and that, in a sense, gives authoritarian leaders legitimacy. Um, and that's the sort of basis of their power. Um, they're not your they're not your sort of traditional dictator or autocrat. Um, they use the veneer of democratic legitimacy um, as a way of keeping themselves within the international community. Um, and I think that's that's this this is a is a is a major problem and area that I think has been underreported. I mean, we, we, we talked about the. The, the idea of how to build or how to break down these things, these 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 barriers and these these basically polarized viewpoints and I think look at both politics and the media as well um at the moment that is essentially the holy grail I mean the number 
new startups or initiatives that aim to sort of break down the echo chamber is massive, but has so far failed to kind of bridge that divide, as it were. Um, as I was saying, I think I think partly this is because, and this is what the social media algorithm also understands, is that people inherently quite like having their views enforced rather than challenged. When you read stuff that confirms your views, not not in in, in most cases that challenges it. Um, but I think being able to accommodate the di- di- diverse range of voices is fundamental in a functioning society. Um, and to run a, a successful campaign needs to reflect that. And I think the, the, the basis of this is getting people, different people from different points of view and different backgrounds in the room. I mean, um, Obama was, was, was saying this when he was on the campaign trail. Um, he was talking about the idea of kind of how political identities, how sort of political views have, have, have transformed into sort of political tribes, as it were. Um, and he was sort of he was he was comparing when he first came, he was campaigning for president in two thousand and seven. He was able to reach and engage, and sometimes even persuade those who were opposed to him. Whereas today, he he very much sort of reaches the converted and it barely registers with the opposing camp because there isn't the willingness to converse. There isn't that. People aren't willing to find that middle ground. Um, and this means this, this means that in a lot of cases, political leaders are not interested in reaching out to undecideds or trying to create a kind of grand coalition. But they're only interested in sort of galvanising their base as a means to win. Um, so I think... In terms of how you do a kind of how you do a campaign, I mean, obviously, just take the, the AV um, campaign and then the Brexit campaign in the UK as perfect examples of the dangers of what happens if you don't try and be outside the sort of group think of your side, and you end up surprised and shocked when. You, you get an outcome such as Brexit um, that you just didn't foresee because you don't have interactions with anyone who doesn't who doesn't um, share your point of view, um, and I sort of think this is this is the this is the problem. I mean, you, and then this this goes back even further into the idea of sort of polarization is as much a sort of geographic phenomenon as a political and social one. So it's about place, and you can see that and you see that in the US um, in terms of where Democrats and where Republicans are. But I think this goes back to the point or the, the importance of in-person getting people with different points of views together in a room, which is increasingly rare, but I think is increasingly vital to creating a kind of cross-census agreement. Do you have any sort of direct experience or even sort of indirect experience or of any involvement with especially the sort of Brexit campaigns, both the, the initial successful one and then the second referendum campaign, any sort of light that you can shed on why it wasn't so successful um, as a kind of example of polarisation, meaning people only speak to people that they already agree with. With with undivided, which was obviously in the aftermath of the referendum, and it was very much about bringing 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 people together to be 
two sides together. It it, it wasn't. It, I mean, let me just clarify. So it so it goes. It goes to the heart, I think, of how you frame yourself. So we framed ourselves not as leavers or remainers, but as people who wanted to come together to collectively accept the result, which I think was really important. That a lot of people, a lot of people weren't doing in the aftermath and didn't do for years after, which I think was incredibly damaging, both to the attempt to get a sort of soft Brexit, but also the attempt, the the the, the democratic health of the UK during those years. Um, so I think. It, the lesson that we learn is 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 how to frame yourself so that you are acknowledging of the, the democratic will, um, but trying to create trying to create a kind of positive light. And I think we also do that with Unhack in the where we the areas that we focus on, the countries we go to investigate, we're very clear that we're not pro the opposition or anti the government. We are pro democracy. Um, and this messaging is incredibly hard. And especially if you're working in regimes where you are not necessarily supportive of what the, the regime is doing. And it's very hard on a personal level as well. I mean, we went with, with undivided women, we're working with leaders and remainers. There, there would be tension, obviously, because the, the referendum was, it was a very emotive issue. People were very passionate about it. Um, but trying to maintain that level of civility, I think, actually single us out as a campaign compared to a lot of the other campaigns that were either trying to sort of reverse the referendum, which we said, which we set from the outset was not our intention and we didn't agree with, um, or trying to paint those who wanted to, wanted to, to a, a softer form of Brexit as enemies of the people or whatever, which is also is also incredibly damaging. So I think the key to that is how you position yourself. Um, and so you to make sure that you welcome in and have a, as broader church and appeal as possible. Edit, thank you so much for joining us. That's been really, really interesting. Really enjoyed thank that. Thank you so much. It's been great to be on. Pleasure. Steve, as always, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Martin, and thanks, Elliot. Really fascinating stuff. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Lab podcast, and goodbye.